Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 207 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a discussion of common pitfalls in conducting internal investigations. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Hope everybody's doing well as we head into the fall here. And uh, hopefully uh, kids are back in school and uh, work is continuing and everybody's staying safe and healthy. Um, thought I'd do a discussion today on some of the common pitfalls in internal investigations. There's obviously lots of issues to discuss here, but I would sort of turn into some of the bigger ones that uh, I've experienced or, you know, uh, heard about, read about. Um and offer some thoughts on that. But before we get started, how about a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance? Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steele's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steele's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to Promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management. Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Okay, uh, well, let's uh, talk about internal investigations. Um, I always uh, think of them like uh, reading a good novel, um, you know, particularly the ones where you, let's say, start off a generalized allegation or even a more specific one, but it mushrooms into more of a story. And uh, so you begin the, the journey with a general expectation of what uh, is likely to have occurred. Um, and the flexibility that's required at that point is really important. Uh, and, you know, you can't prejudge anything here. Um, and as every reader knows, or anybody who's involved in the investigation experience, uh, the the unexpected path as you sort of twist and turn um, is pretty interesting. Um, you know, there's moments of discovery, surprise, and ultimately you reach a, a sort of firm understanding of what occurred. And as you fill in those, uh, you know, the picture there, it, it is interesting and it can definitely, you have to be aware enough to not prejudge, but to sort of go with the uh, flow of the evidence. 
and follow the evidence. Um, so, you know, in the end of the story, I mean, sometimes you start with an end of a story and you're trying to figure out what happened. Like, let's take, uh, you know, an oil well explosion or a dramatic event uh, that's known, but you want to know what happened and, or you're trying to determine the cause of it or who can, who participated in it, what role did each person play or what omission uh, they may have been responsible for. So, uh, you know, the hotline report uh, type of investigations where there's alleged misconduct that is, you know, serious and then ultimately substantiated after a thorough investigation, um, you know, usually you're going down that path of a sort of slow but steady understanding of what occurred, who was involved, and how the scheme was executed. But there's some common traps, um, and while some of these maybe basic, uh, that I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, I have seen these issues come up. Um, we, for example, uh, can face mounting pressures from, you know, internal pressures, uh, when conducting an investigation as to, let's say speed or substance, uh, you know, the CEO, uh, may pressure you, or you may have the board who's conducting oversight, uh, and then you also have external sources that you have to be mindful of, like government prosecutors, uh, stakeholders, shareholders, um, those types of people, and stakeholder interests that can come into play. Now, um, you know, shortcuts or, or not, you know, doing the job that really needs to be done can have a very serious impact on the uh, ultimate success of an investigation uh, and an ability even to conduct the investigation Uh, if people don't trust you or don't trust that you're really committed to finding out uh, the truth. Uh, If you, you know, for example, are viewed as just an extension of the CEO trying to investigate some conduct. So you have to look, uh, you know, you really have to build trust along the way to access information and conduct uh, an effective investigation where you get uh, the cooperation of people. So let's talk about one which I just uh, already referred to, and I would call that uh, preconceived results. When, when an investigator launches an investigation, uh, you have to avoid applying a preconceived answer. You may have been told lots of things, like we can't believe this particular uh, subject uh, who is alleged to have stolen money, and people are telling you in the company, I can't believe he would do this. He's a great guy. I've known him for years. He would never do that. Um, you know, we've never had any complaints about this person. And and lo and behold, uh, if you take that preconceived sort of presentation, uh, you may miss something. Uh, And it's happened, uh, it's happened to me, to everyone where you may misjudge a particular situation because you don't have all the information, but people around you are saying, this is the way this one thing occurred, or this is the way he could never have done that. You know, now um, you also have to be careful about a whistleblower complaint coming in and the way that sort of management responds to it. If management presents this and says, look, we don't know if this is true or not, accurate or not, or whatever, please find out, uh, do what you can. Um, But uh, oftentimes you'll be presented a whistleblower complaint and there's already sort of attempts to undermine 
the complaint. We don't believe this or, you know, there's some real sort of concerns about the substance or whether this person, even though we know, may not know their identity, would be in a position to know this type of information. Uh, and you have to sort of put those two aside, uh, to the side and, you know, determine uh, your own, uh, reach your own determination as to accuracy or credibility of the report. So don't take those preliminary comments coming from, let's say, a company and various people that you're dealing with. Uh, don't take those to heart in that sense. Of course, they can provide valuable background information, but what I'm talking about are sort of the results, where they see this thing ending up. So look, in off, often, you know, CEOs, senior executives, or whoever brings you in to do a whistleblower complaint investigation, um, they're hoping that it turns out to be unfounded. But the more seasoned executives will just back off and say, look, I'm going to stay objective here. You, we want you to be objective, follow the leads, make a fair assessment, and let us know. And uh, that, I think, is a much more healthy approach from uh, management uh, as to how you're going to go about your investigation. And it's easy for the CEO or senior executives to rationalize facts away or avoid the implications of corroborating or substantiating a whistleblower complaint. And investigators, though, when they come in, have to remain true to their mission. Investigate with an objective mindset. Now, uh, a second concern or a second sort of practical issue that might come up is sometimes uh, I've seen investigators come in and sort of failing to understand or even follow the assigned scope of the investigations. Um, and this is really care. This is really an important point, particularly if you're reporting to the audit committee or any committee at the board. Um, you have to have a clear scope of the inquiry, and you, as the investigator, have to understand and follow that scope. If facts lead you to go beyond that scope, then that's when you go back to the board or the committee or whoever's overseeing the investigation and update them with regard to that issue. So an investigator that tries to sort of uh, go beyond the scope of the assignment uh, or, you know, stretch the issues into something else or who knows, but the failure to sort of have the proper focus and also to operate in a professional way to follow that scope uh, is really imp uh, important uh, because if you don't do that, that can lead into a whole lot of issues, political and otherwise. So what needs to be developed is a clear and concise statement of the investigation purpose and the scope, which is ultimately adopted by a board committee uh, charged with oversight of the investigation uh, there may be a work plan, a specifically investigative plan that's uh, developed as part of that, which is also reviewed and approved uh, as to the nature of the scope, but also as to how it's, the investigation is going to be carried out. And this is a really important discussion that has to occur between the board and the investigator to ensure critical sort of monitoring, support of the investigation, and ultimately, uh, execution that is, uh, comes back with good results. And by good results, I mean uh, a, a careful and independent investigation that holds, uh, holds up under scrutiny. Third issue uh, that I want to talk about, talk about is 
Um, the delay in document preservation. Okay. Now, we all know that, you know, one of the first things that happens in an investigation is a freeze on uh, documents, uh, destruction, or, uh, you know, your document retention policy uh, is suspended for purposes of this litigation or an investigation or whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, inter important internal investigations are often la launched rapidly with time pressures in response to a real and significant concern. Somebody may have stolen money. We want to know as fast as possible. Somebody may have done this, that, or the other. And, you know, we're just, we really want to know, did they uh, bribe somebody? Did they not bribe somebody? Whatever. We want to know. We have an invest. We have to follow up on this immediately. But it's important to ensure that an initial document preservation hold is prepared, communicated, uh, throughout the organization, you know, obviously with proper regard for not tipping off certain um, uh, individuals uh, who are subjects to the of the investigation. But you also, um, you know, sometimes uh, those, uh, the impact of the hold letter or a hold process by which you prevent, um, you know, emails from being deleted or, uh, you know, making sure that people can't delete uh, various electronic files and things like that. It's all very important, but uh, it's really uh, critical that you're able to show that the documents were preserved and that your access to documents uh, is uh, insured in one way or another. That's just not a good way to get off on your investigation to sort of say, oh, we don't know if we really have all the documents. Um, there also can become really difficult issues with regard to electronic messages. By that, I mean texts on phones. Are these phones that are uh, personal phones uh, subject to a BYOD policy, or are they company phones? Uh, and the same with regard to computers. Um, we've had situations where the computers could be... Um, uh, there was no policy that required people to turn over uh, their information as part of an investigation. And uh, in various parts of the world, people may be reluctant to uh, pressure workers to give them their uh, computers, their laptops, uh, and mirror them. Well, you don't want to run into those situations. Same with regard to uh, phones, BYOD phones. It's got to be made clear that uh, those the materials on that relating to work shall be provided uh, and could be grounds for termination if you refuse to do it. Uh, same with, uh, um, uh, you know, all the obviously uh, text messages, um, WhatsApp. Now, for example, WhatsApp, to, to get access to that information, you literally have to download it off the phone. Uh, so that's really important because it's not something you can get on a sort of computer backup. Or if you have Slack communications within the company, uh, those can be accessed as well, and you got to make sure that there's uh, documentation in place that allows you access to that. So uh, let's go to another issue, uh, issue number four, which is uh, premature interviews. And there's often a lot of pressure uh, on investigators to... Uh, you know, find out what's going on. Find out what happened. Um, even if you just get a preliminary interview, go ahead and do that. 
They want to know quickly the business does so what they can plan down the road for responding to the investigation. Are we going to get in trouble? Will we have to do a voluntary disclosure? Everything like that. There's no doubt you need to move as quickly as you can, but there's nothing worse than going into an interview uh, with a potential subject and almost a potential, uh, you know, wrongdoer where you don't have the documents, where you haven't collected, processed, and reviewed relevant documents before interviewing those key players in the investigation. This can cause delay. And on rare occasions, an investigator may decide to interview uh, a subject of the investigation before completing a review of relevant documents involving the subject. And that's a very risky tactic because you can lack key information you will end up disclosing information by the documents that you show them, for example. Uh, and then as a result, the witness can get an early glimpse of the scope of the investigation, what information you're focused on, what you may or may not have, and then prepare even better to outmaneuver you when you do get all the uh, files and all the documents. So you got to be careful of that as well. And uh, so try to be patient, process the documents as quickly as you can, um, you know, your keyword searches and other ways for narrowing down the documents uh, is going to be helpful, and you just got to move as quickly as you can. Obviously, you're going to uh, interview people, uh, work your way up a chain, less important as you work up to the more important interviews. The initial interviews should be background interviews to understand what's going on, and then you work up to the more important interviews. So this is just be careful about premature interviews because those can undermine the integrity and the ultimate results with regard to an investigation. The final issue, and I've sort of, uh, it sort of permeates everything we've discussed, which is responding to internal pressure. Uh, a CEO or senior executive who has much to lose from an internal investigation will inevitably communicate to the investigator the importance of the investigation uh, or, you know, the pace at which it's going. They'll want some updates. Um, now, this is assuming that the CEO is not subject, uh, a subject to the invest of the investigation and that the CEO had nothing to do with it. Obviously, if he or she was, they would have to be walled off in that sense from any involvement in the oversight of the investigation until they're cleared. So there have to be clear boundaries uh, surrounding communications. Uh, if unchecked, an interested party could infiltrate and influence the investigation, even sort of pressuring you as the investigator to take certain investigative steps one way or another. Uh, and those steps or, you know, pressures to go one way versus another could turn out to be uh, detrimental to the whole investigation. In fact, raise suspicions as to why uh, the uh, CEO or some other, let's say, officer is pushing you to go a certain way. Again, your independence, your judgment, your room within which to operate, and that's why having the clear, bounded support of, let's say, whoever is overseeing you in the investigation, being the audit committee, that it's very clear that, uh, if necessary, they may have to intervene to push away or to tell uh, you, you know, somebody to back off a little bit. So that's uh, an important issue, and I've, I've seen that come up a lot, particularly in the sort of high-stakes uh, internal investigations. Anyway, those are just a quick 
few thoughts on internal investigations. There's obviously lots and lots of other issues that come up, um, and we'll come back and talk about them uh, some other time. But uh, in the meantime, thanks for uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.